Amen. At this time, I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, a text we've been reading through uh, this morning in the scripture reading, John chapter 20. Uh, again, if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, get one right around there, right around you there in the chair in front of you and uh, follow along that way. John chapter 20. This morning, uh, we come to uh, the most important and the least understood chapter in the entire gospel of John. Imagine if an author wrote an important work, but then people failed to understand its most significant part. Well, understanding this chapter of John's gospel is vital for anyone who lives on this planet. Uh, but understanding this chapter requires not only physical understanding, but it requires spiritual insight into this text. I've been praying all week that God would allow us to grasp the full significance of John chapter 20. In this chapter, we're going to find answered promises. In John chapter 14 through 16, uh, John had, uh, in some of his last moments before his crucifixion, had laid out for the disciples that God was going to do some significant things. Of course, he would uh, be killed, but then he would uh, rise from the dead and he would ascend to the Father. He tells them this in John 14 through 16. He explains that when all this happens, that he will send the Spirit of God to come and to indwell the disciples and to those who are followers of Jesus. And so what we find in John 14 through 16 are those promises, but in John 20, you find the fulfillment of those promises. In John chapter 20, you have the, the longest, most explicit, empty tomb description found in the entire Bible as well. This is a very important text, but unfortunately, people often fail to grasp these verses. Well, to help us better understand this chapter and these verses this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to draw our focus onto the way four people responded to the resurrection of Jesus. And as these characters appear on the scene, I would like to put our, the spotlight on them momentarily. The other characters will fade into the backdrop. We'll look at that character and see how they responded. And then by the end of the sermon, I'd like, like to make a point for each of our lives. So in order to see the first character, look in your Bibles at verses one and two. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse one gives us some important details about the setting of this chapter. What we know about ancient tombs is that often Ancient tombs around Jerusalem would contain large stones that would be rolled along tracks to open and close the tomb. And that appears to be the situation here with Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. Well, the other Gospels fill in some of the other details for us. We know from the other Gospels that there was a group of Roman soldiers who were employed to keep watch over the stone and the tomb to make sure no one would get in, no one would take the body of Jesus. Uh, we, we also know that the stone was sealed shut at the tomb, and we know that the women who came there originally on this day, the Lord's Day in the morning, 
were very concerned about how they would be able to move the stone away from the door. Although present, the Gospel of John does not mention the other women here. John draws the reader's attention to one woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And I want to tell you a little bit about her story this morning. This is Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, I think because both women were named Mary, um, whenever you see this Mary found in the Bible, she will be called Mary Magdalene. Now, she is called Magdalene because she comes from the little town in Galilee called Magdala, near the Sea of Galilee. And so every time you hear her, she'll be Mary Magdalene. It's like me referring to someone today as like Chesapeake Joe or Bob from Fentress or something. This is Mary Magdalene. And she's truly an unknown figure in this book. There's only been one verse about her in the entire gospel up until this point. Just one verse in John chapter 19. Now, now in other gospels, we learn more. We learn a few other things about Mary Magdalene. Uh, So for instance, I'm going to read just a few verses from Luke's gospel. You don't need to turn there this morning, but Luke's gospel, just to to give you a feel of who, who Mary Magdalene is, Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, And the twelve were with Jesus, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. So what we learn in Luke's gospel is that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. She then begins to follow him from that point on, and with other women, she uses her wealth and her means to support Jesus and his disciples. That's Mary Magdalene. Now, in our story, in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene arrives on the tomb and sees that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. As a matter of fact, one of the keys to understanding this difficult chapter to understand for people is to see the word saw or to see throughout the chapter. It's repeated often. So you look down in your Bible at John chapter 20 and verse 1, and we see uh, uh, near the middle of that verse that Mary saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then we go down in our Bibles later on in the narrative in verse 6, It says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Repetition, the word saw is found again in verse eight. Seeing or or this word saw is found all throughout the book, all throughout this chapter. Look at verse eight. Then the other disciple who had reached the term first, tomb first, also went in. He and he saw and believed. And so this is a key. John is portraying for us what people saw after the resurrection of Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene sees enough to know that something's wrong. So she sees the tomb is open and empty, and so uh, she begins to make her way to two disciples. So far in the narrative, uh, Mary has no thoughts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She doesn't, that's not even on her radar. 
Instead, she thinks someone has moved the body. I think she assumes, presumably, that someone had stolen the body. And to her defense, this was a fairly common practice, according to ancient sources in the first century. This was a Roman crime. So that's what she assumes, and she runs to go get help. Well, the rest of her story will be picked up later in the narrative, verses 11 through 18, but let's read verses 3 through 7 to find our second and third characters. Look in your Bible at verse three. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Next, Mary Magdalene runs and gets Peter and John who immediately start out for the tomb. Verses three through seven in this this sermon or in this chapter portray that they're running side by side. Imagine the disciples, they hear, someone has taken the body of the Lord and so Peter and John start out running side by side until the beloved disciple overtakes Peter and arrives at the tomb first. Now, for clarity's sake, as we look at this part of the chapter, I want to just zoom in on both of the characters for a moment. First, we look at Peter. Simon Peter was one of the 12 disciples of the Apostle Paul, and true to his nature, he impetuously rushes right into the tomb. If you know anything about the Bible, you might know that this is just like Simon Peter. Nothing scares him. He runs right into the tomb. And once Peter sees the linen burial burial cloths lying there and the face cloth, uh, he begins to draw some observations. Now, the face cloth that is described here was a cloth that would be used to be placed over the face of Jesus, just a small towel that would be placed over his head underneath his chin after he had been killed. But But what this narrative describes for us here is that both the linen body cloths and the face cloth were intact and lying in the tomb. Now, clearly, there's something about this description that the author of John's gospel feels is very important because he says it like two times. So there's something about this description that he sees as as being very important, but their exact meaning is a little bit beyond us, and it's disputed by different people who've studied this chapter over the years. As a matter of fact, one commentator by the name of D.A. Carson describes how some people interpret what is going on in this passage. He says, some have thought that the burial cloth still retained the shape of Jesus's head and was separated from the strips of linen by a distance equivalent to the length of Jesus's neck. He said, so some people read this and they think that the burial, the face cloth just kind of drops there where Jesus's body had been formerly. He continues by saying, others suggest that owing to the mix of spices separating the layers, even the strips of linen, the burial cloths, retain their shape uh, that they had when Jesus's body filled them out. Well, that's how some people take this text, that it looks like a body, but the face cloth drops and the linen clothes are still there. I think that might be going a bit too much for what this passage actually says. Instead, it is probably better to see 
that Jesus apparently passes through his grave clothes in much the same way that later on he's going to appear in a locked room with the disciples. The key takeaway, though, from John's description of the tomb here is that this was not a chaotic and confused scene. It was very orderly. No one would take the time to unwind the grave clothes of Jesus and fold up his face napkin. And so what Mary has perceived to this point must be wrong. It's not the the, uh, tomb being robbed. Well, this is what Jesus sees. This is what Peter sees. And in a moment, we're going to see that Peter leaves to go home without any further comment being recorded in the scripture. I've often wondered at this point, what in the world is Peter thinking? He sees this stuff laying there orderly, not in chaos. What is his point? What is he thinking? We just know that he goes home, he leaves the empty tomb, he goes home. Now, I think later on, the very next chapter, Peter is going to reckon a little bit more with the resurrection of Jesus Christ when Jesus confronts him. I think Peter will... I confess and believe at that point, but uh, that leads us to the other disciple who ran there with him, and I want to read verses 8 through 10 with you to learn more about the beloved disciple. Look in your Bible, verse 8. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This other disciple... The beloved disciple is John, the disciple of Jesus. He's one of the 12 disciples as well. Well, John sees the same things that Simon Peter did. They both see, okay, you look down in your Bible, verse 6, middle of the verse. uh, He saw, Simon Peter saw, look in your Bible, verse 8, middle of the verse, end of the verse, and he saw, that's the other disciple, they both see the same things. John, however, goes further than that. John believes. You see that in your Bible? I think the beloved disciple, as he's writing this chapter, is making a point out of this. This is an important difference between him and Simon Peter, at least at this point in their journey. At this point, it appears that John believes that Jesus has risen. Again, this response is different than Peter's, and with it, John responds in the ideal way. This is what the whole book up until this point, this very important gospel of Jesus Christ written by one of his followers uh, approximately 50 years after Jesus lived. John writes his book and throughout the book, he's, he's really leading us to the place where you would see that the ideal response for any reader concerning Jesus is to believe is to believe in him. And so John here sees and believes. If you look in verse 9 of the text, you learn that although John now believes, he has yet, he and Simon Peter have yet to understand what the Old Testament said about the Messiah needing to die. Look at verse 9. For as yet, they did not understand the scriptures that that he must rise from the dead. Now, this shouldn't surprise us in John's gospel, for often the disciples did not understand something about the Old Testament. And it wasn't until after Jesus rose again from the dead that they began to 
slowly sometimes, uh, one at a time, believe or understand what the Old Testament said about Jesus. Now, I think the point that the author's making here about John is captured well by one writer. One writer explains it this way. He says, John believed on the basis of seeing the empty tomb left in a certain condition rather than believing from the Old Testament scripture. You see, John is narrating the moment, my opinion, the moment that John came to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ even if he did not yet understand that the Old Testament scriptures taught such a thing. And so what we learn about the beloved disciple here is that the beloved disciple is quick to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sees and believes. But let's see what happens next in the story. In verses 11 through 18, the author returns the spotlight onto Mary Magdalene. Last we heard, she was in Peter's home but now she has made her way back to the tomb. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white (laughs) sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she asked to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She then turned to Jesus and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I think Mary here is still overwhelmed at the loss of Jesus, but at that time she comes upon two angels in the tomb. She only comes upon these angels. She even sees Jesus, but is too distraught to recognize him. But when Jesus calls out her name, however, Mary, she quickly runs to embrace him. It's this point, I believe, that she understands that Jesus has risen and she believes that Christ has risen as well. Well, Jesus responds here to Mary that she cannot continue to cling to him for he has yet to ascend to his father, meaning uh, that he is not going to remain there permanently, but he soon will ascend to heaven and that she should not cling to him. This is not going to be a permanent relationship again. So instead, he gives her a mission. He asks her to go immediately and tell the disciples that he has risen and that he will ascend to the father. So Mary Magdalene takes this good message of hope to the desperate disciples. You see, Jesus helps her see the reality of his resurrection and then uses her to pass this word of good news along. Now, before we keep reading in the narrative, I can't help but think that the world is full of people who should respond like Mary Magdalene did here. 
They understand the reality of the resurrection and then they go share the good news of the resurrection with people who are desperate in need of help. It might actually be true of some of us in here today. We, we might say that we love Easter. We get all dressed up, we do our thing, we talk about it, we post on it maybe on social media or whatever. We say we're Easter people, that we love the resurrection of Jesus Christ, But let me ask you, when was the last time you were like Mary Magdalene? And you went and you told some people who were in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Easter every year by God's good grace until the Lord returns. But in this past year, have you been like Mary Magdalene and have you gone and shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Perhaps before you would say, I'm an Easter person. I love the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You should consider whether or not you're sharing that with your friends and coworkers and and neighbors. They are desperate in need of good news, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so after Mary encourages the disciples, uh, we will not read the next section, but he comes and he appears to 10 of them in an open room or in a private room in verses 19 through 23. That leads to another person that I would like for us to focus on, another character by the name of Thomas. Now, Thomas is one we've read about already. I won't read verses 24 through 28. We actually heard that passage read earlier, but Thomas was a disciple as well, but as was said already this morning, he was an ancient skeptic. Since Thomas was not in the room with the disciples originally, he demands some things. He demands empirical evidence to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. You remember uh, the, the story that we read, he, he will not believe unless he sees with his eyes and feels with his hands. At least two of the senses must be fulfilled for Thomas to believe. Well, Thomas is slow to believe in this text, but his profession of faith in Jesus is powerful. Look at verse 26. I will read just a small portion. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And it's at that moment that Thomas confesses that Jesus is Lord and God. Thomas is converted. Just a few things about that statement I want to point out to you. This is a very powerful statement, my Lord and my God. This is more than just recognition of the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is where Thomas makes a gigantic leap of faith and declares that Jesus has been too much for him. He attributes to Jesus two things. You are my master and you are God. My God. He believes, of course, that 
since Jesus has defeated death, he must surely be God. And notice that he repeats that possessive pronoun, my, twice, to make it very clear to us. You are my Lord and my God. I believe this is the highest point in the entire gospel of John. For years and years, I taught at a Bible college and I taught through the gospel of a class called the Gospels. I think that I've had the privilege of teaching a class in the Gospels to over 2,000 people by God's good grace. And every time I would end that class by reflecting upon this narrative where, where Thomas, the doubter and the skeptic, finally believes in Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And over the years, by God's grace, I have seen God use this text, this climax of the Gospel of John, to see some of those young people, those college kids, come to know Jesus as their Savior as well. I remember talking with one, one young man in particular. I'd known him for a while. I'd actually gone to school with his older brothers, and, and he was sitting in a class the whole semester. I would, have, I would have never known that he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. So he's sitting in the class at Bible college. He comes to me after all the other students leave, and he says, Brent, would you, would you sit down with me and show me how I can believe like Thomas did? And he came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here, Thomas is slow to believe, but God has used his conversion and recorded it in this gospel as a very powerful message for us. But there is one more character with which God is concerned in John chapter 20. Look in your Bibles at verse 29. Jesus said to him, as Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here, Christ saves the highest blessing for those who believe in Christ's resurrection without ever seeing him. Those who believe in Jesus without seeing the empty tomb or the wounds in his hands inside receive the highest blessing. For you see, the last character that God is concerned with today is you. God is looking down on this auditorium this morning at each one of us, and he has his spotlight on you. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows everything about you, for he created you. He knows your appearance and your mannerisms. He knows your every movement. He knows the thoughts of your minds. Isn't that impressive? God knows your intentions, your dreams, and your whole being. And so I asked this morning, how will you respond to the empty tomb and the risen Christ today? To me, it just floors me that, that God had this book written over 2,000 years ago, and he has preserved it for us in, in, 
our Bibles so that we can read it. And he has had it proclaimed to you today so that you would understand as well the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, we've considered how people respond to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is one of two important parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a member of Colonial Baptist Church, you should know this by heart. The two important parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ are that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. We know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this planet that Jesus lived a perfect life on this world, yet sinful men crucified him, they took his life, and that the scriptures declare that Jesus died, but that it was for our sins, the sins of the world. But that's one part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he dies on a cross for the sins of the world. The second part is what we've been considering today, that Jesus, three days later, rose again from the dead to defeat sin and death. You see, Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again for you, men and women. I am concerned. I'm concerned this morning that there will be people under the sound of my voice who hear me proclaim these words. Listen carefully through John 20, but who will one day Endure the eternal torment of hell. God is concerned for every person in this room or in the overflows. God is concerned for you. That's why he has Jesus record this blessing for anyone who would, who would not see and yet believe. You must Believe in Jesus today. I'd hate to hear or know at any point in the future that there were people present at Easter service in 2018 at Colonial Baptist Church who heard this message but did not believe in Jesus and turn from their sins. Now, perhaps you feel like there's no way God would save you. I'd like to close with one last illustration. I was reading this week about a man by the name of John Bunyan. I actually came across this story yesterday. John Bunyan lived in the 1600s. As a small child, Bunyan had an unusual zeal for idleness, mischief, and perversions of various sorts. He was a wicked little boy. He was well known. Bunyan managed somehow, though, to deceive one person the young woman that he convinced to marry him. She was a daughter of a godly man, and it was her purpose to try to transform him through the word of God, but it did not work. One Sunday, however, while Bunyan was engaged in his his usual self-centered ways, he said it was like he heard a voice from heaven calling out to him, saying this, it, it said, Will you leave your sins and go to heaven or keep your sins and go to hell? It seemed as if the Lord was looking down on him in deep displeasure, he recalled. 
But then at the same time, he felt that he had sinned for too long. He, was, he had been perverse in so many ways, it was too late for him to be saved. So he thought this. He said, my state is surely miserable. I can only be damned. And if so, I might as well enjoy sins all the more before the judgment. And so at this point in Bunyan's life, for over a month, he engaged in every form of sin that he could possibly imagine. But one day, by the grace of God, he's walking down the streets of a poor little town there, and he overheard some women speaking. They're having a conversation in a doorway. As he drew near to them, for some reason, he listened to them, and these women were speaking of their new birth in Jesus Christ, of the work that God had done in their souls, and their personal experience of the saving power of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Bunyan was amazed at their faith, and he understood that his sin would damn him, but that Christ's work could save him. He was converted to become a preacher and later authored a very important book in its own right, Pilgrim's Progress. This is truly an amazing conversion. But how about you? What will you do with Christ? Will you turn from your sin and believe what John 20 says? Let's close in a word of prayer. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. (laughs) If you are here today and you've never believed in Christ, turning from your sins to him, I would encourage you to pray to him now. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do this silently. You don't have to respond in any other way other than you must admit your sin, repent of your sin, and declare to God that you believe that Jesus died and that he rose again for your sins. Again, you can do this today. You you don't need to leave here today without knowing this. And in a moment of quiet prayer, won't you, though having never seen him, believe? I'd like to give you just a moment to pray to the Lord. Father, I do not know who it is in this room that has never turned from their sins and believed in the gift of your Son, the powerful gift that overcame the penalty for our sin, the separation from you as a holy God, through the work of Jesus. But Lord, I pray that you would give spiritual understanding to every person in this room, that they would understand the significance of the story, that I, this narrative that I've told, 
that they would perhaps respond like the beloved disciple who sees and believes. Or they'd respond by, like Thomas. Perhaps they've held out for some time. Fill the past that there's no way that you would still forgive them. May, may they respond like Thomas as well and say, you've been too much for me, Jesus. Your grace is too powerful. It's too awesome that I could be forgiven for all of this stuff. Lord, may they repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would experience the blessings that are recorded here for them. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.